Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As Germany deals with the aftershocks from the decision of Angela Merkel's chosen successor as leader of the ruling CDU party to step down from that role, the focus has now turned to how long the Chancellor herself can remain in office. And is Germany about to embark on a radically new political direction? Derek Scally, our Berlin correspondent, will give us his take on that story today. Later, I'll be talking to Suzanne Lynch in New Hampshire about the Democratic primary there that could prove a make-or-break moment for some of the high-profile candidates seeking the party's nomination to contest the presidential election in November. But it's to Berlin first, and Derek Scally is on the line from there. Derek, just how big a deal is the decision yesterday, Monday, of the woman, I'm going to refer to her by her initials, AKK, to step down as leader of the CDU and to say she won't be looking to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor? Yes, it's a huge deal. Well, let's get her name out of the way first. We won't be hearing much of her in the future. Angret Kamp-Karrenbauer, um, quite a long name, eight syllables. Um, Easy for you to say. I think, yes, I, I think uh, journalists' keyboards across the capital aside with relief at the, sign, at the news that she was leaving. Um, but for the CDU, this is a pretty much a disaster because... They had gotten a plan in place for the for the era after Merkel. Uh, Angela Merkel has been Chancellor now since 2005. She's going to stand down at the end of 2021 when there's a federal election. And AKK, as we'll call her, was her chosen successor. She was elected 14 months ago. Uh, it was a tight election, but you know she was the continue continuity candidate. Um, but since then, it's really been downhill. Uh, she struggled to uh, impose her authority, and all of that has come back to haunt her now. And the CDU is standing there with uh, Angela Merkel heading out the door, but her successor heading out the door ahead of her. That wasn't the plan. Now, AKK's troubles, as you mentioned there, they'd been kind of mounting for some time, but the chain of events that led directly to her decision to step down began just six days ago with the election of a new premier in the eastern state of Thuringia. Um, can you recap for us, Derek, what happened in that state that ultimately caused this political earthquake in Berlin? Sure. Well, Thuringia is one of Germany's smallest states, and to be honest, it really isn't a place where much news ever happens. Certainly not news that would affect the rest of the country. But that all changed uh, Wednesday of last week, because what happened is uh, the state has been trying to put together a state government. No parties had a majority. The outgoing coalition didn't have, coalition didn't have a majority. It was a left-wing coalition. And they tried to put forward their leader of the left party. And the centre and centre-right and the far-right decided we're not having that. And so Angela Merkel's party uh, and the Liberal Free Democrats, from which this, uh, from which an alternative candidate came, and the far right—that's the alternative for Deutschland—they all elected this liberal candidate instead, and this caused huge uh, uproar uh, across the country because up until now there's always been a, a sort of a gentleman's agreement in German politics. Nobody does any deals with political extremists, certainly not on the far right. There's too many uh, bad historical memories there. But that's exactly what happened by accident or design last week. Uh, this uh, this alternative candidate uh, with far-right backing and Angela Merkel's party backing them um, took office. Uh, within 25 hours, he had stood down again, but the damage had been done and the shockwaves have continued right through up to Berlin because um, Annegret Kahnbauer, AKK, she was the, she's the federal leader of this party. So she has this local party sort of freestyling uh, in eastern Germany doing deals with the far right and she's standing there saying we have an agreement that we don't do that but they completely defied her and that was basically 
um, that really broke the camel's back. People have known for a long time she was struggling with authority in the last year. But when you have a party openly defying you and openly defying you to do a deal with the far right, then you know you really have a credibility problem. So after quite some time... And just to cut in, Derek, thinking, sorry, I yeah, might just cut in because yeah. we'll come back to that in a second. But just I'm just curious. I mean, we, we've seen all over Europe, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen far right parties and populist parties, you know, gain access to the corridors of power and gain seats in parliament and join governments and so on. What's the particular, is it Germany's particular history that just makes it almost unconscionable for the establishment parties to to do any kind of a deal with the AFD? Well, there's several things. The main thing is, of course, history. Um, uh, 90 years ago, it was in Turinia, actually, that the Nazi party, NSDAP, got their first uh, foot in the door. The first minister ever for a Nazi party to be elected was 90 years ago this year in Turinia. So some people are making those parallels. I think it's always dangerous to compare the Nazi party to anything because a history doesn't repeat itself. And the Nazi party was just so uh, unusual and so terrible in its crimes later. But um, so there's the, the German specific history. So the whole notion never again you know never again should be anything resembling the nazi party so nobody wants to go go anywhere near any party which german courts have said the leader of this party in the state can be described as a fascist so he's not just a sort of a populist he's not sort of a hard right he's definitely considered far right and his party and the local party is under investigation by german domestic intelligence so this is serious stuff so that's on the one hand, the specificity of German history. On the other hand, the party hasn't really been around that long. It's been around for seven years. It started as an anti-bailout party. In the last couple of years, it's been radicalizing. Um, and and we sort of we're, nobody's quite sure where the journey's going to end, how far right will they go. And I think when a party like that is transforming itself, it's very hard to get a grip on it. There are sort of conservative liberals in one end of the AFD, but they seem to be increasingly crowded out by the far right who don't have any problems, you know, quoting Hitler or uh, provocations of, of outrageous provocations about the Holocaust and so on. So uh, it's just, it, it all sort of comes together that the AFD is just a really toxic mix for German politicians. But it should be said that they are represented in all Germany's 16 states state parliaments, and they are the largest opposition party in Berlin. So they're obviously tapping into something, but the politicians aren't quite sure what it is and whether or not they should be trying to tap into it too. And just one more question, Derek, on the local before I come back to the national, if you like. Um, was the AFD offered anything in return for its vote in favour of putting this Premier in office in Thuringia? No, I mean, they seem to have uh, duped the other two parties by uh, pulling away support from their intended candidate and in the final third round of voting, switching uh, to the Liberal candidate. Uh, so the other two parties claimed that they were duped, but everyone else had said, well, A, you could have seen this coming, and B, once it became clear uh, that the AFD had thrown their weight behind a, a Liberal candidate, and um, that Liberal candidate didn't have to accept the vote. He could have said, I don't accept the vote, and they could have gone off and had a negotiation. But he won't. He accepted it. So from that moment on, the damage was done. Um, and the AFD kind of, they sort of outsmarted people. And it sort of does raise questions about just how intelligent the parties are in uh, this East German parliament, because those kind of tricks are, you know, it's kind of like politics 101. But anyway, that's what happened. So the CDU and the Liberals, the FDP, they claim that they were outsmarted. This wasn't intentional. Other people aren't so sure. And it really isn't clear at all uh, if there was some sort of back de- back uh, backroom deal done. It certainly looks and smells bad. So how then did this local, um, these local shenanigans, if you like, or manoeuvring by the AFD, how did that become a full-blown national crisis for the CDU and, and like-minded parties? 
Well, the CDU leader, AKK, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, um, she headed down to Turingia, the capital is airport, and she had a, a crisis meeting with them and she said, you have to you have to undo this, you have to call fresh elections, you can't, uh, we can't bring our party anywhere near the AFD, we have a deal on paper that no party, no AFD, uh, no CDU party around the country, regional or federal, will do anything with them, so you've broken the deal. Uh, and the party sort of looked at her and said, well, we'll kind of do what I want, because um, this, the, what you must remember, Germany's a federal country and uh, while um, uh, Frau Kramp-Karrenbauer is the federal leader, regional leaders have quite a lot of power and uh, they can sort of look at her and they can they basically told her to get lost and we're still trying to work out what it will work out in, in Turingia but what happened then is she travelled back to Berlin with no deal or nothing really resembling a deal and she had to stand there with like literally it was like the emperor with no clothes on or empress with no clothes on or somebody said to me she's like a queen without a kingdom. If, you, if you're the head of the party and your own party leader uh, regional leaders are defying you what what is your role exactly and that's I think what she was thinking about over the weekend even Angela Merkel was looking on from the sidelines and felt she had to get involved and when she stood down uh, 14 months ago she promised not to get involved in domestic politics so if your boss is hanging around and your boss starts uh, intruding on your patch and your employees aren't listening to you anymore you kind of know you've got a credibility problem now, you wrote in the Irish Times today that her resignation or her stated intention to step down is a humiliation for Angela Merkel. Why so? Well, I mean, Angela Merkel has been in power since 2005. She's remained relatively popular right through when you consider uh, everything that's happened in the world since then, Euro crisis, migration crises, uh, the confrontation with the US. Remarkable figure, uh, remarkable sustainability, remarkable um, stamina, I suppose would be the word. But she did hand over power in 2018, but she refused to go all the way and actually leave office. She promised to stay on until 2021. But this job share uh, hasn't really worked out because uh, nobody's quite sure who has the final word in Berlin. So it's a humiliation for her because she had this plan, let's split the job, I'll stay on as Chancellor, you take over as party leader. Everyone said at the time, not sure if that's going to work. It didn't work. And not only did it not work, the person she chose didn't work out either. So she, this was her great final political coup. She's she's decided the moment when she will depart politics, which is very rare as we know in politics. Uh, and she has decided who will be her successor. But um, the second hasn't worked out, the candidate. And now people are wondering, well, if it didn't work out for this woman, this job share, why should it work out for anyone who takes over after her? So I think the notion that Angela Merkel has, will be able to choose the moment of her departure, already people are circling around her in Berlin saying, you know, go with God, but go. So essentially, it looks like now like whoever succeeds AKK as leader of the CDU, they will want uh, the chancellorship immediately. Yes, but uh, this being Germany, the unit of time is the week, if not the month. Everything takes time. And um, they're probably going to be talking about this for the next couple of months. And the next CDU party conference where um, AKK was supposed to have been, had her mandate renewed, it's a two-year mandate, that isn't until December. So the party is saying, well, we'll have to have sort of auditions and we'll have... Um, you know, like a flat chair or something, trying to get a new roommate in. And then we'll have regional conferences. And and then at the end of the year, we'll choose the new leader. So, And then that new leader won't get in until after Christmas. Uh, and then early next year, they'll start their, you know, fitting their new office out and measuring for curtains. So we could be talking in a year's time before um, Angela Merkel really has to probably stand down and give her successor, her successor's successor, a free run at, at the general election, perhaps with the keys 
to the Chancellery. So what's and, and that the would be very close to her own timetable anyway then, Derek, Exactly. Yeah. So she'll probably be angling to sort of uh, literally to sort of disappear in the last six months, technically be staying on. We don't know yet. But the, the, the main concern, I think, we should be thinking about it for anyone else in Europe is, I mean, Angela Merkel, the election was in 2017. It wasn't until early 2018 that they got a government in. And then this whole thing with Angela Merkel and her leadership and succession, that took up most of 2018. Her, her coalition partners, the Social Democrats, they had their own personality leadership crisis last year. They spent the second half of last year navel-gazing, regional conferences, choosing a new leader. And no sooner is these Social Democrats, the junior partner in the Berlin coalition, no sooner are they back, uh, got a new leader or two new leaders, uh, the CDU has imploded again. So for anyone sitting around Europe, you're kind of asking yourself, when will Germany be functioning again? I mean, I... Uh, um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has been tearing his hair out, what's left of it, anyway, uh, in the last few years, saying, I just want to do, you know, do things in the European Union. It'd be nice to be able to do that. It'd be nice to be able to work with Germany. Germany is so internally torn apart, uh, its coalition partners. Uh, this is the third grand coalition, and it's one too many for many people. Germany just isn't functioning politically at the moment. And that's, I think, a concern for the rest of Europe. Now, Merkel has stayed in office for almost 15 years and by, by keeping the party kind of firmly in the centre. Um, is there an, a likelihood then, Derek, that whoever succeeds her will want to take the party in a different direction? And who might those, uh, who are the potential successors? Yeah, this, this is actually the real issue. I mean, the, the personalities are interesting and all that. But what this actually is, is a, it's sort of an, a structural identity um, strategic question. Uh, the CDU is, it's, it's like, it's called itself the... Uh, Christian Democratic Union, and it likes to consider itself as a union that pulls in various political um, camps and unites them under sort of a centre or centre-right banner. Um, in the last few years, what we've seen is with various things, whether it was the Euro crisis or the refugee crisis, um, Angela Merkel decided centrist policies uh, are the way to keep, you know, there was the, the uh, sort of broad centrist tent will bring in the most voters. Um, but that's really been irritating sort of her traditional conservative voters who said this woman is, you know, our party, we don't even recognize it anymore. Some of them have been disappearing to the Alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party. Some of them are staying, but those people are getting very loud now, and they're saying um, we need to be more open to strategic uh, alliances, even with the far-right, or even talk about it, uh, because otherwise the party is going to drift off even more to the centre and to the left. But Merkel's people, that's the other camp, they're saying, no, we need to maintain the centrist uh, stance. That's the only way to maintain the CDU as the, the dominant force in German politics. So what we're seeing is the CDU is being nibbled at one side and being pulled in the other direction. And this leadership debate we're having, uh, we'll have this year, is going to be a repeat of what they had in 2018, but they never quite resolved it in 2018. Are we a centrist party? Are we a centrist party with the occasional dash into social democratic territory, which some people would say the refugee crisis about? Or do we go like Austria and do uh, try and steal some of the clothes of the far right to pull those far right voters back in uh, who haven't completely become extremists, but are, let's say, concerned conservatives on things like migration, on things like fiscal policy. And that's the CDU doesn't really know what to do. It's it's completely torn itself up and um, it doesn't really know what to do in Thuringia where all of this started. Should we tolerate this left-wing leader? Is he the lesser of two evils compared to the far right? What do we do in Berlin? And any successful candidate will somehow have to have a plan, not just 
uh, a hope and aspiration to unite the Christian Democratic Union. But actually, here's the plan. This is how I plan to bring in the various forces, because at the moment, the party is fighting it's amongst itself. And Angela Merkel's last year in office is uh, going to be uh, a very uncomfortable one for her. And are there any front runners emerging at this stage, Derek, which might give us a clue as to what direction the party might actually go in? Yeah, two of the people who ran against uh, Anagat Kamkarambar are throwing their hat, probably going to throw their hat into the ring again. Um, but, you know, they have their fans, but they have quite a few people in the party who don't like them. There's a, cent- there's a centrist candidate coming from a western state of North Rhine-Westphalia. He seems to be sort of a unifying father, presidential figure. He might work, or maybe there'll be a dark horse who'll come in from somewhere else. But um, the, the issue really isn't the personalities. The issue is the structural problem. What is the CDU? How many parties, how many camps can the CDU tolerate? And how does a new leader propose to um, have those various camps compete, stop competing with each other and actually unite behind the new leader? Because um, they don't seem to have a shortage of leaders or leadership hopefuls. They seem to have a, a, a real problem with strategy. What is the party and why? And what then, Derek, about the immediate future of the Grand Coalition in Germany between the CDU and and the SPD? Is that likely to sort of limp on while the CDU, this leadership kind of battle plays out? Or or is there a threat that, you know, this could fall apart if there's a, given that there's a change of leader now coming in, in one of the parties? Yeah, well, the Social Democrats did say yesterday, well, our coalition deal was Angela Merkel. So the implication there is if anything changes on that front, um, they will maybe not be around. But of course, they're, um, they're I think, at 13% in polls. So they have no real interest in early elections, the Social Democrats. Um, this government has been limping. I mean, it limped into office in 2018 uh, after the 2017 poll. It's been limping since. I mean, the ministries in themselves are doing some good work, but all in all, there's no real sense of direction. There's no real sense of purpose. Angela Merkel will keep going to Brussels, but nobody really knows. Is she the woman to do any deals? She can't really, in all conscience, uh, agree to anything big uh, that might last outlast her in policy terms. So the new European term in Brussels is completely hobbled because Germany just can't get its act together. Angela Merkel wasn't sure if she wanted to run for a fourth term, and I think everyone has agreed, and probably even herself, that that really wasn't a good idea. And now uh, Germany and the rest of Europe will probably have to pay the price. So I'll finish Derek by putting you on the spot. Do you think Angela Merkel will see out her full term until 2021 or will she be pushed? Uh, well, two things make me suggest that she probably will. Number one, German politics just trundles along at a remarkable rate. As I said, the unit of time is not the hour or the day, uh, as in other countries, it's the week or the month. Uh, so that will slow things down. And secondly, Angela Merkel has proven uh, an extremely tough, durable person. And I think she hasn't already, she hasn't left yet. And people are kind of, on the one hand, impatient that you know, her time has come and gone and she should have left. But people are also worried about the time after her. And the resignation of her successor has almost made people nostalgic for something that is yet to happen, namely her departure from politics. So who knows, that might prolong uh, this very, very long goodbye from Angela Merkel. Derek, thank you. Thanks again to Derek Scally in Berlin. We're going to the US now to speak to Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, who joins me from New Hampshire, where the Democratic Party is holding its first primary in the contest to elect a candidate to contest this year's presidential election. Um, Suzanne, we're we're just coming down from election fever here in Ireland. So what's the atmosphere like there? Is there a, a buzz around the place with all these high profile candidates from the Democratic Party looking for votes? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, all the main candidates have been in New Hampshire for most of the last week. They arrived, many of them left the night of the Iowa caucuses uh, and got on their planes and, and flew straight to Manchester and really have been campaigning 
across the state ever since. It's a small state, about 1.3 million people in New England. Um, you've got a lot of people who come up from New York and Massachusetts here, you know, over the winter months. Um, but it's uh, an interesting state in itself because it, Hillary Clinton did win this state uh, in 2016, but only a tiny amount. So there'd be quite a strong Republican vote here as well. Um, so as I say, over the last week, um, candidates have been campaigning across the state, but very much this would be a familiar territory to two candidates in particular, Bernie Sanders, who comes from neighbouring Vermont, and Elizabeth Warren, who comes from Massachusetts. They both border the state here. So they have had campaigns here for pretty much a year. Uh, staff members have been here. Um, but as I say, the other candidates are all here as well, crisscrossing the state, looking for those final votes. And what's the uh, state of play between the main candidates now going into this primary? Who's going in on the front foot and who's under pressure? Mm. Well, the polling is showing that Bernie Sanders is well ahead uh, in the polls. As I say, you know, he's got, he's well known in this state, uh, particularly in the western side of the state near Vermont. Uh, he, um, he's he got a lot of uh, name recognition, basically, and a lot of that comes down to, to that in, in this race. So he is well ahead. One of the last polls that came out in the last few days put him at 29% well ahead of his of uh, his next rival. And, and that's where it gets interesting. Since the Iowa caucuses where Pete Buttigieg uh, claimed victory, at least in terms of the delegates, uh, he has been um, moving up the polls. And that's been one of the significant trends over the last few days. He's in second place and um, still a bit of a gap between him and Bernie Sanders. But he has been kind of leapfrogging the other candidates, if you like. Uh, so that's he. So I think it's coming down, a lot of people think, to a battle between Biden and Buttigieg for this state. Now, <clears throat> that has implications, obviously, for other candidates here. I think there's a... Um, a sense of, of disappointment. Obviously, we, we need to see how people vote uh, today. So, I mean, for other candidates like Elizabeth Warren, you know, there are questions now about her campaign. I think it's fair to say that that has been losing a bit of momentum. She was very popular in the state for the last few months, uh, but she's been slipping down the polls. So we expect her to come somewhere third, fourth or fifth. Um, Amy Klobuchar, she's the senator from Minnesota. She's had a very good few days. In the last two days, she's kind of peaked which is a, a good place to be when you're coming into a primary like this. Uh, she's quite popular. There's a lot of yard signs around the place with Amy for America everywhere. So she's one to watch in the primaries. And then, of course, Joe Biden. You know, things are not looking good for Biden. Uh, he's here in New Hampshire and uh, has held a number of campaign events. But there's talk that he could end up fourth, even fifth in the state. And that would, I think, you know, not quite strike a fatal blow, but would open serious questions about his candidacy. In one sense, the Biden team have been very good at playing down expectations. They've always said that Iowa and New Hampshire um, were not ripe territory for Joe Biden. And that actually he's going to come into his own later on in states like South Carolina in particular. That vote, that state votes on February 29th and it's got a it, it's Democratic electorate is majority African-American. Um, so over the last few days, we've seen Joe Biden pointing to this again and again. And there was a debate on Friday night here, and he um, opened the debate by admitting he did not do well in Iowa, but also saying, and we don't expect to do that well in New Hampshire. So a lot of people saw that as quite defeatist. Uh, and also, 
if you are um, arguing all the time that you're going to do so well in South Carolina, you really need to do well in South Carolina on February the 29th. And there's, there's very few, generally there would be um, a lack of poll, polling generally in South Carolina. It's quite difficult to read that state, but there are indications that maybe some of his African-American support there is slipping. So if that was the case, he could be in trouble. But I think a lot of his donors in particular would be looking at his performance tonight. So I think the two people who need to perform well in New Hampshire for different reasons are Pete Buttigieg, uh, because you know, he really needs to do well in New Hampshire to keep up his momentum. If he if he was to underperform, he could be in trouble because he just does not have that kind of momentum and name recognition in the next few states that vote. And then for other reasons, Joe Biden, I think a lot of people are looking to see how he performs in New Hampshire. Is it correct to say, Suzanne, and you can maybe tell me if it's not, but in, there are almost two races going on here. On, on the one hand, there's a race to find a candidate to represent the left of the party, the progressive wing, as it's called. And, and in that race, Bernie Sanders is, is, is ahead of Elizabeth Warren. And then you have almost a separate race to, to identify a moderate candidate. And Pete Buttigieg is kind of ahead of that race at the moment. Yeah, I think that is that is very true, that there are these two wings of the Democratic Party. And of course, those tensions were there during the last presidential campaign between Clinton and Sanders. And they're back here again. And they, the, the, um, I was at a dinner on Saturday night. It's kind of a state dinner that happens uh, every four years here. started under President Kennedy. And all the candidates had their you know five to seven minutes of fame where they stood up to cheers at this huge arena. And they all, um, they all placed themselves in that narrative, as, as you pointed out, uh, saying, you know, Bernie Sanders saying, you know, we need a change, a, a real kind of economic and socialist change here, that the system is not working for America. Whereas you'd people like Buttigieg and Biden uh, saying that, no, there has to be a moderate ground here. We have to win over um, independent and Republican, left-leaning Republicans, if you like, in the national election. Uh, and we heard both Biden and Buttigieg talking about how they could work across the aisle and how they can appeal to that middle ground now, the, the problem is that, and this is one of the, why this race is getting so interesting, we still have a lot of candidates in the race. We have not had a situation yet where somebody pulls out and then backs their person. So one scenario may be that Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, depending how it goes for New Hampshire, could be coming towards the end of her campaign, possibly. If she was, who is she going to uh, throw her support behind? The obvious uh, person would be Bernie Sanders. So, you know, he would get a huge boost for that, from that, if, if that was to happen. Similarly, on the more moderate wing, will Pete Buttigieg uh, get that support, say, if Joe Biden was to pull out? What's been interesting there, and it's actually been a lot more bitter, is that Joe Biden has uh, gone on the attack against Pete Buttigieg, he issued several digital ads over the weekend where he um, took issue with Pete Buttigieg's lack of experience, talking about him being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana versus vice former Vice President Joe Biden. He also raised issues about uh, Buttigieg's support among the African-American community. So that has taken a turn for the worst, if you like. There's a lot of tensions there between the Biden and Buttigieg camp. Um, the Biden people feel they've nothing to lose at this point. Biden is obviously on the back foot and he feels like he needs to go on the attack. But um, but you're right. At, at some point, maybe we will see some of the, well, we will have to see some of these candidates slipping off um, the campaign trail and who they then put their their support and their donors behind will be crucial. Uh, but a lot of people now we're talking about the Biden versus Buttigieg here, which is the story of, of this New Hampshire primary, perhaps. Um, but ultimately, who is it going to be uh, in the next few weeks? I think people are saying Bernie Sanders really is the one to watch 
here because the key issue is that Bernie Sanders has got a, a huge amount of money behind him. He is he is really topping the polls, not just uh, among his supporters here in New Hampshire, but also in terms of the money. He's getting a lot of donations, a lot of small time donations and hundreds of thousands a day he's raising. Um, so I was talking to some people here last night and they were kind of saying uh, people who would be more on the Biden side. And they're they're saying that they're not too worried about Buttigieg because they feel that he will. He does not have that support past Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, whereas they feel that Bernie Sanders perhaps does the signs that he's doing well in Nevada uh, and that he has got deep pockets on that the funding is still coming uh, for uh, for Bernie Sanders. So I think this conversation about money and donors is going to become much more relevant in the next few weeks uh, as we get past New Hampshire and into the primary states. Essentially, you know, who can afford to stay in? And Joe Biden, a lot of his donors are now are getting worried. So, uh, you know, as I say, that's why it's so important uh, to see how he performs uh, tonight in New Hampshire. And speaking of candidates who can afford to stay in, Suzanne, there is, of course, one other candidate we haven't mentioned, and that's Michael Bloomberg, the, the multi-billionaire who isn't contesting this primary and mm. he's staying out of the next couple of primaries as well. But he is, he is um, you know, com- campaigning heavily. So what, what's his plan? When does he uh, actually propose to start looking for votes? Yeah, this is very interesting that, that Mike Bloomberg, his strategy has been from the beginning to wait out in Iowa and New Hampshire and then get into the fray after that. And at the moment, it appears that this might pay off for him because the race is so split here um, that really what you're talking about is a split vote. I, I Again, I'm talking to voters here, as in, New, in Iowa, who have not yet made up their mind, who actually are attracted by a range of candidates and are not backing one particular person. He predicted that this might happen and that's what's happened. He is going to be much more in the picture when the primary race moves to Nevada. That's the next big contest. It's actually going to be a caucus on the 22nd of February. And he is due, he is qualified for the Democratic debate. That will be the first time uh, we see Mike Bloomberg debating these other candidates in that week running up to February 22nd. But um, he has been very active in terms of his funding. His funding, his, his, his money is just dwarfs everybody else. He's spent about 270 million so far on ads. We need a candidate who has the strength to rival and defeat Trump. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you matter in this process. We're asking you to believe with us. It is possible. It is possible. It is possible. This is how we win. Join us at MikeBloomberg.com. I was told again by people here over the last few days that he's also uh, hiring a lot of talent, like hiring some very um, well-established politicals, essentially, uh, to pepper his campaign. Maybe he'll pick up some of those as other candidates uh, fall by the wayside too. And also that people feel that he is somebody who could, you know, take on Donald Trump. The same way as they, I, I we hear this a lot here, that they feel like maybe Bernie Sanders could do as well, that they can, they would effectively stand their ground in a debate with Trump. So I think Mike Bloomberg does have some of, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of momentum really behind him, mainly due to the funding. But I mean, it's, it's anecdotal, but I was speaking to a Republican, one of the interesting things about here last night on the eve of the primary, Donald Trump was in Manchester, New Hampshire, having his own rally. As I mentioned, there's quite a big Republican vote in the state and 
Trump would like to win New Hampshire in the in the national election in November. And I was speaking to some Trump supporters, moderate kind of Republicans, if you like, who were going to this rally. And one of the men I was speaking to was uh, telling me, I asked him, you know, well, which Democrat would you like? And he he said, if it was anybody, maybe Biden. But he said, no, Bloomberg would be the person I would vote for. So, you know, Bloomberg does have um, something to give the electorate here. He can say to people on the moderate side of the wing, getting back to that that distinction you pointed out earlier on, Bloomberg would be on the moderate side. Uh, he'd be on the Biden Buttigieg side and he would argue, well, I can win over the Republicans like that man I was talking to last night who said, you know, in a national campaign, he he would perhaps vote for, for Bloomberg. So, look, I think that's a huge uh, element of this campaign. Uh, the Bloomberg factor is going to start coming into play here. Uh, and, you know, one strong possibility we could be looking at is is. Bernie Sanders versus Mike Bloomberg. That, that's a real possibility. And of course, as you say, that really does uh, capture the divisions within this party, the more socialist wing versus the more moderate, some would say, like right wing of the party wing epitomised by somebody like Bloomberg. And um, Suzanne, just to draw a line under it, if you like, a quick uh, reference mm. back to Iowa, which we covered last week on the podcast. Pete Buttigieg, as you mentioned, did emerge as a very narrow winner over Bernie Sanders, mm. but there were still lingering questions about the integrity of the voting system. Has everybody moved on, though, from that result and are they accepting it or is, it still, you know, a, is there still a question mark over that? Um, well, I, I think they have moved on, although Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg's team are now asking for a partial re-canvas, but this would be you know, a, a couple of dozen precincts in Bernie Sanders' case, I think. So it's not like a huge recount. Um, but no, I think people have moved on from Iowa. Um, they've been focused on New Hampshire. The big winner from Iowa, without a doubt, has been Pete Buttigieg because it gave him that momentum that he needed as a kind of political newcomer. And it really did um, give that to him coming into New Hampshire. But no, I think people have kind of left that behind. There are obviously serious questions that have to be asked and will be asked of the Iowa Democratic Party. And I really do think that there's going to be a conversation in the next few years about whether to abolish this whole system of having early voting states like Iowa and indeed New Hampshire. Um, the the head of the New, Anx- New Hampshire Democrat Party, Ray Buckley, he uh, spoke to journalists yesterday and he was making the point, he was asked, well, you know, if Iowa goes, surely there will be questions for New Hampshire because similar arguments apply to New Hampshire that it's too white that is too rural, that it does not reflect America. And why should the state get an outsized role in choosing the nominee for president? Um, but he was making the point that things are different in New Hampshire. It's a primary rather than a caucus. So it's a more simple process. They've been doing it for 100 years, he said. Um, and they have no new system. Iowa uh, or uh, introduced new elements to their voting this year. And that's one of the reasons for the delays where uh, New Hampshire, this should go pretty smoothly tonight. You know, we're expecting results and exit polls shortly after 7 p.m., some polls some stations do stay open till eight, but generally after exactly at eight PM, we expect some results here. Um, but no, there will be questions about the whole way in which Democrats pick their candidates, because there's no doubt that it's done huge damage to the Democratic Party. And in a week when it was a difficult week for Democrats, the Iowa caucuses coincided with Donald Trump's acquittal in the impeachment trial. It coincided with a State of the Union address. It coincided with strong economic numbers. Um, so the, this not was what the, these optics were very, very negative for Democrats. And I think they're aware of that. But in terms of the candidates, I think, you know, the next focus tonight when this is finished, some of them are going to be on a plane straight away to Nevada to um, to start canvassing in that state and then on South Carolina. But look, Chris, it does seem that, you know, by Super Tuesday, 3rd of March, we will be getting a very 
full picture. Somebody like Joe Biden, it, it will be make or break by the 3rd of March, whether he is still in this race or not. So, you know, within the next month, I think the field will winnow down. We'll have a lot more indications of who actually you know, will last the pace and, and become nominated in July. OK, Suzanne Lynch in New Hampshire. Thanks a lot for that. And that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.